0: Welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're in New York City, uh, sitting with Mitchell Yackelson, investigative archivist at the National Archives and Records Administration and the author of 47 Days, How Persians Warriors Came of Age to Defeat the German Army in World War I. Welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're in New York City, uh, sitting with Mitchell Yackelson, investigative archivist at the National Archives and Records Administration and the author of 47 Days, How Persians Warriors Came of Age to Defeat the German Army in World War I. Mitch is also the author of Barred Soldiers, Americans Under British Command, 1918. A specialist in the Great War, Mitch has repeatedly won well-deserved praise for the succinct and precise narrative he constructs, all well-supported with primary evidence. Mitch, welcome to New Books Military History.
1: Thanks, Bob. It's good to see you again, and I'm excited to be able to, to talk about the book. It's great.
0: You're not only a trained historian, you're also connected to the federal government as an archivist employed by National Archives. How does this connection affect your writing? and historical interpretation. I mean, does it convey any special obligation or responsibility that you have to accommodate or observe?
1: Well, when I um, attempt a, a writing project such as this, it's separate from the work that I do as this uh, investigative archivist with the, the archives. For a while, I was the subject area specialist in World War One, so I know the records that NARA has quite well. But when I do these writing projects as a government employee, I have to vet it through the agency, let them know that I'm doing this, and I have to do it on my own time. But um, it's usually not a problem, other than the fact working full time and then trying to write in research can be, you know, an issue for anyone. Uh, but it's just it's an honor to be able to work at the archives and use the records that they hold.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you, know, you say also you're a. Uh investigative archivist. Can you describe what that entails for our listeners?
1: Sure. It's a unique position. As far as I know, I'm the only so-called investigative archivist in any sort of repository, and it's a reaction to, unfortunately, a number of thefts that NARA has had from both internal and external employees. So my job is to help the agency recover items that either went missing through theft or some other form of lost, misfile, file or to look for things that should have come to the archives that ended up either at another repository, another archives, or library, historical society, or ends up on eBay and auction sites, government records that, for whatever reason, never made it there. And it's an exciting job. It, it, I get to use both my historical skills as... Uh, looking for things and researching. And then I've gotten uh, training along the lines of how to um, interview and question people. So it's kind of like a slash FBI agent slash historian.
0: <laughs> Closest thing we have to an action hero in our profession, I
1: guess. Uh, have you, what,
0: what's the greatest thing you found related to the Great War?
1: Well, um, a few years ago, I worked on a case that was actually the largest case of archival theft. More than 10,000 items, not just from the National Archives, but from repositories all around uh, the United States. And one of the items that the uh, the thief took, his name is Barry Landau. It's out in the open. Your listeners can Google his name and see articles written on him. He's still in prison. But one of the items he took, he was really interested in ephemera, especially menus and invitations to events. And um, an item that he had taken from a historical society was an invitation to a speech by General Pershing. I believe it was sometime in the 1920s. Really ornate, beautifully written, um, nice paper. It had the sort of rope on on the edge of it. And it was just really cool. And the fact that I really uh, appreciate what General Pershing did during the Great War, and and readers of my book will see that I I side with him quite a bit, Mm -hmm. Seeing this, this item was just really neat for me, and um, it just kind of brought back my, my real interest in Pershing.
0: So is it safe to say that may have been some of the impetus for this book? or
1: A, a little bit. You, you, that's a good point, because i discovered this, um, or saw it at least, a few years before I started writing 47 Days. And, and I think you're right, maybe subconsciously, it, it made me appreciate Pershing mm. more as this hero of the United States that today we don't think much about but even here in New York there's you know, Pershing Square mm-hmm. near um, 42nd Street but almost every town, city in the United States has something either mentioning Pershing or maybe even mentioning the muse Argonne and um, you're right maybe subconsciously I thought more about Pershing as um, I began to write the book
0: mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have to admit you know, I've always overlooked the timeline between the onset of Meuse-Argonne and the end of the war. And you characterize Meuse-Argonne as one of the ignored or misrepresented success stories of the Allied and American war efforts. I mean, I guess my first question, subsequently, is, you know, is, that, is it really appropriate? Is it a forgotten campaign? Or are perhaps we, you know, more comfortable in just lumping it in into the larger war effort?
1: Well, when you think about the United States in World War One, it's largely forgotten. I mean, a lot of Americans have an inkling that the U.S. was involved in World War One. And, in and as far as you know our participation, it was certainly a lot shorter than the other Allied countries. We did ultimately have um, two million men and women overseas. Mm-hmm. Another two million were in the United States and would have eventually come over had the war. Extended beyond November 11th and maybe into uh, 1919. And then you talk about the Meuse Argonne, which is a battle that took place on a 34 mile front between the Meuse River and the Argonne Forest. Ultimately, it became what represented the Americans. It was a, the largest battle involving the United States. Uh, halfway through it of course we didn't know at the time it was going to last 47 days by about mid-October there were about 1.2 million Americans involved I mean that's a tremendous amount and it's because of the success of Pershing and as I call them his warriors in that battle it did drive the Germans to say enough is enough and we're going to capitulate with an armistice. And it it pushed them literally over the edge. And so it, it became the reason why the war ended when it did. And as time went on, it, it largely became forgotten, mostly because it took a while for Americans to really understand and perhaps even accept our role in the Great War. And then the next thing you know, we're attacked at Pearl Harbor, and we're involved in a far greater war, which you could argue is kind of a continuation of World War One. Um, and then after World War Two, you get um, you know the interest more is understanding what happened in World War Two, and even today, World War Two is far more. I, I hate to use the word popular, but it's it's no. it's something that's um, always- Americans.
0: It's almost a cottage industry in itself. It is,
1: mm-hmm. and, and along with the Civil War. And so World War One kind of becomes bookended between the Civil War and World War Two. But now we're approaching the centennial of the U.S. entering the war. Um, April of 2017 will mark the 100-year commemoration. And I'm doing a lot of work with the U.S. World War One uh, Centennial Commission to uh, help publicize public programs, Teaching initiatives, exhibits, hopefully documentaries, and so forth, that'll bring a greater awareness to the United States' role in the war.
0: You know, early in the book, you compare Pershing, well, say rather favorably to his predecessors. Ultimately, you liken him to Ulysses S. Grant. Can you elaborate on that comparison? I mean, it's a fascinating juxtaposition, I think.
1: Well, for one thing, Pershing was a huge. I hate to use the word fan, but he was. He was a fan of Ulysses um, S. Grant. He appreciated what Grant had done during the Civil War. And, and Grant um, you know, had a difficult, regardless of what you think of him, he was appointed by President Lincoln to command mm-hmm. all the Union forces. And he felt the only way that he was going to bring the Confederacy to its knees was through basically a war of attrition by throwing more troops at them recognizing that there was going to be a large number of casualties ultimately Pershing would do the same thing and abuse our gun and he was heavily criticized at the time by uh, the other allied commanders because Pershing pushed for an open warfare he didn't want his men remaining behind the trenches he wanted them to use rifles that they were trained with attack the German positions directly and it did result in heavy casualties for example during the Meuse-Argonne more than 26,000 American troops died during that 47 day battle that's a lot plus there were another 100,000 that were seriously wounded and um, Pershing received a immense amount of criticism the Allies said well you know if you had been amalgamated your troops had been amalgamated with ours like we wanted in the beginning we would have cut down losses I don't agree with that. I think the losses would have been just as high if you look at the numbers of British yeah. and French troops that had been killed in other battles throughout the war. And even towards the end of the war, they were extremely high. It was just a brutal war. And ultimately, it was a war of attrition. Mm-hmm. And then since World War I, other historians who have written on the American participation tend to be fairly critical of Pershing for that very reason, that he, in a sense, sacrificed men. And and I think he recognized that too, but it was really the only way that his troops were going to push through.
0: I wonder if some of that critique of, of Pershing isn't related to the way that the Anglophile or, or the British narrative has kind of dominated our telling of the war
1: i think you're absolutely right bob um i did my phd in the uk mm-hmm. and it was my dissertation dissertation became the first book borrowed soldiers about two american divisions that trained and fought with the british pershing allowed them to stay there as borrowed right. with the intention of bringing them back at some point which he never did mm-hmm. and i remember when i was researching it and talking to british historians the, the sort of sarcastic comment was oh the yangs fought in this war um and you're right. The, most of the major studies of World War One, meaning the, the books that cover you know soup to nuts from yeah. June 1914 to the armistice, almost predominantly just talk about British troops. John Keegan, for example, yeah. wrote I think a pretty good book on World War One, but he's got one small chapter. On the Americans, largely based on other well, secondary sources, to,
0: to Liddell Hart and sure. he the Great War.
1: Yeah, although um, Hart was somewhat of a supporter of Pershing, he wrote a, a series of uh, articles on generals for another volume, mm-hmm. and he wrote pretty glowingly of uh, Pershing. But yeah, the British tend to dominate the the World War One historiography.
0: You know, and yet Pershing had a reputation for being a taskmaster, on his subordinates. What kind of leader was he? And you really think, was he the best man for the job?
1: Well, to take the first part of your question, using today's vernacular, he would have been a micromanager. Mm -hmm. In other words, he had his hands in everything. For example, he was placed in command of uh, a fledgling army when um, President Wilson and Secretary of War appointed him to lead an expeditionary force, which eventually grew to the American expeditionary forces. But he was told, you will command this AEF, as it was known. You will um, cooperate with the Allies, but you will lead it independently. And the reason uh, Wilson pushed that was... It wasn't so much that Wilson was thinking, you know, I'm a great strategist and the only way we're going to win this war is because of the Americans. It was he was thinking along the lines, well eventually the war is going to end and I want to have a, a say at the peace table and the only way to do that is an American independence. So Pershing was given a tremendous amount of latitude, very similar to Ulysses Grant when he was appointed commander of Union armies, although he stayed in touch quite a bit with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Pershing, on the other hand, had very little contact with President Wilson. He did have a lot of contact with Chief of Staff Peyton March. They didn't Mm -hmm. get along all that well. And he had a lot of contact with Secretary of War, Baker, who came to France quite a bit. But Pershing was ultimately um, in control of things. And he oversaw every element of the AEF. And then... He took on the role of First Army Commander when that was formally organized in August of 1918. Ultimately, that became not such a wise decision because he was the leader wearing two hats. And when First Army started running into trouble, uh, literally a few days after the Meuse-Argonne kicked off on September 26th, the other Allied commanders were calling for his head. They were calling for him to be sacked, and he was incompetent. He didn't know what he was doing. But I think he was the right commander for the overall AEF and even the right commander initially for First Army in organizing it and pushing the um, other officers. He comes across as this very stern-looking guy when you look at photographs of him, as somebody who... <laughs> Somebody who doesn't smile, um, very difficult to get along with. But when you read the accounts that others say of him, he was a very charming guy.
0: He had such a tragic life, though, just before the war.
1: I mean, well, he did. He uh, he lost his wife and three of his four children in a fire at the Presidio. And I think that happened in August of 1915. I think that would harden anyone, of wow. course. But... Um, Overall, I think people admired him. They certainly respected him. For example, George C. Marshall, who was one of his operations officers, and really the architect of Samiel and Muse argonne mm-hmm. worshipped him. He remained loyal to Pershing um, up through the, you know, Pershing until uh, he died in, in 1948. Mm-hmm. If you ever read his memoirs, which are really good, he talks very glowing, especially during the dark period of Muse argonne when Pershing almost has a nervous breakdown, right. and um, rightfully, and, and I think smartly, he says, you know, I can't run both the AEF and First Army. I'm going to step down. So he steps down. He appoints um, Major General Hunter Liggett, a corps commander, brilliant corps commander, as uh, head of First Army as a lieutenant general, Forms Second Army, places Major General Robert Lee Bullard in, in charge of Second Army, which never really gets going. The interesting thing, getting back to the micromanager theme, is even though Pershing steps down his First Army, he's still hanging around near the headquarters and he's really a thorn in the side of Liggett. Um Liggett is brilliant. He's got he's got things under control. He reorganized his First Army. Mm-hmm. There's a huge straggling problem. Supplies are not getting to the front Troops are cold, they're hungry, they're running around looking for food. He gathers them up, figures how to get the logistics forward. But Pershing is just badgering him all the time, and he can't really let go. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, uh, Lincoln does take over, and the Americans regroup, and they become, I believe, the best army on the Western Front, and comparable to the Germans, who were certainly the best army that the world had seen mm-hmm. um, at that point.
0: Well, you know, you portray this very complex series of relationships between Pershing and his peers in the Allied armies, I mean, particularly with Douglas Haig and Ferdinand Foch, but then also, Henri you know, and, and others, um, but also with their respective heads of state, you know, David Lloyd George mm-hmm. and um, Clemenceau. Can you describe more specifically who did Pershing really get along with and yet, who do he have, not have any time for? But how does he balance these relationships? Because that's the best part of his job, is to represent the United States, not only in the battlefield of battle, but also at the tables of power.
1: Well, it gets back to your previous question of uh, whether or not Pershing was the right guy for the job. And part of the reason I believe he was, because he had... Experience in being not just a, an army commander, but also as a diplomat. He spent a lot of time in the Philippines mm-hmm. after the Spanish-American War, when the so-called insurrection was going on, and then the, when we were trying to pacify the Philippines. And he did an excellent job in, say, pacifying the Moros, both with bullets, but also diplomatically. So when he was thrust into the First World War, The Allies wanted the Americans there, but, again, they wanted them more as replacements. And Pershing was adamant to fight against it. So he had not only fighting the Germans, but he was fighting the other Allied commanders. And they locked heads significantly, especially with... um, keg over the troops that were with the British. But Foch, who becomes Generalissimo, he's head of all the Allied armies, is responsible for everyone. And can you imagine the pressure that all of these men were under? Even David Lloyd George, um, Clemenceau. I mean, the war had been raging. The casualties were enormous. The infrastructure. And then there's Pershing coming in. He's got to represent the United States' best interests. They want the war to end. They're looking at this guy as being obstinate, and there's words that are flying. uh, Foch and Persian go at it Um, on more than one occasion. They almost come to blows over how the U.S. forces are going to be used. I think ultimately, though, when all was said and done, there was a great amount of respect for everyone, especially after the armistice, when they could look back and say, okay, we won this thing. And... There was some reluctance by the British and certainly the French of, you know, what role the Americans contributed. But deep down Mm -hmm. inside, they knew that it was the Americans that really turned the tide. Mm -hmm. And I think all of the bad blood that went on from 1917, when the Americans got on up to the armistice, kind of shifted aside. And, you know, everybody was just so appreciative. Mm -hmm. Obviously, as time goes on, you need to look back. You start to question, you know, well, maybe we should have done this differently and so forth. So I think um, it, 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 to wrap up your question, it, it was almost like brothers fighting um, or co-workers fighting in some way, but ultimately everyone had the same goal, and that was just to get that war over mm-hmm. and get the best out of it that they could. You know, you addressed
0: the build-up in quality and quantity of the AEF between July and September 1918. You know, factoring in help was part of that. You know, it's been given that the American attack was successful because the Germans, they'd already decided to pull out of the salient at Samyel. Presuming the attack occurred earlier, or if the Germans had decided to really hold that ground, was the AEF up, at that point, was the AEF up to the task of meeting the full weight of the German army?
1: Well, the the Sami El as you point out, the Germans had a withdrawal plan, and they recognized that there were Americans in the area. They didn't know exactly where they were going to attack, but they knew an offensive, and they also recognized that, well, maybe we don't need to hold this ground. We need to start shifting troops. But what happens, though, is even though the withdrawal had been called for, it wasn't fully in place. So actually the Germans were still in large numbers there when the Americans attacked. And the American attack was somewhat of a surprise, but it was largely successful because Pershing threw you know, more than two times as many troops at the Germans. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to your question, had the, had the Germans said, we're going to hold the salient at, at all costs, I still think the Americans would have succeeded because no. of just, again, this back to the war of attrition. There would have been more Americans fighting. And even with the withdrawal, the German troops didn't just give up. I mean, they right. fought tooth and nail, um, and, and that was just really their their culture. So I, I think um, it, it, that's one of the fun things about history is looking back and saying, well, what if, what if? Yeah. I still think the Americans would have prevailed at the salient.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm generally careful about throwing counterfactuals in. I mean, the reason I do here, of course, is that also affects the timetable that Pershing
1: had committed to. Correct? I mean, it, it is. I mean, he initially had to again fight Foch to get the Samuel operation, something that Pershing had wanted since he came to France. He felt it was a vital part of the front, mm-hmm. and he was insistent that the Americans attack that area. Mm-hmm. And um, Foch reluctantly allowed him to do so, but he said, We want this larger attack on the Meuse front, and it's going to coincide with other Allied attacks. Uh, towards the end of September. So you've got to be ready for this. And so Pershing said, okay, I can do this. And so this is where Marshall came in. Marshall organized Samiel, shifting troops to that front. And then he withheld a number of other troops, twice as many who were going to go to the Musargon front. So as soon as Samiel was under control, which literally it was the first day, and then they were mopping up operations uh, the, the next few days afterwards. Uh, Marshall started shifting troops in the other direction. All had to be done at night. There were few roads, and you had to get French troops out of there, other Allied forces, and you know, commingling on the roads. It wasn't an easy task, but the Americans were certainly in place by the early morning or late at night of uh, September 25th, and ready to jump off the following morning.
0: You know, you mentioned Peyton March and Newton Baker earlier. Um, you know, I you know, understand that you know Pershing had a very good relationship with March. Uh, he actually got along well with Baker. Um, did they? Either of them, or to what extent did either of them interfere with his operational and daily control of the army?
1: Um, Not at all. Um, Baker was, I think, an excellent Secretary of War. He understood what his role was. He wasn't a military strategist. He was a businessman. But he understood as a businessman that I have to support my commander in the field. So what he had done is he came over to France on a few occasions toward the logistical areas, the base sections, toward the front, just to make sure that the troops were getting what they needed to make sure the supplies were coming over. And and March was the, you know, the Army officer in charge of that in Washington. He's the one that would meet on a regular basis with Baker when he was in at the War Department building. Um... I think the problem between uh, March and Pershing was just a matter of jealousy. Uh, They were both, I mean, technically speaking, even though they were of the same rank, Pershing was supposed to report to March. March was sort of his boss, and there was jealousy and so forth, and maybe March felt like he should have been in a command position. Well,
0: Uh, Pershing had a reputation of being a maverick, upstart officer who jumped
1: up, right? Sure. There was some jealousy there. Um, as you point out, Pershing had jumped over a number of other officers of the same rank, or even higher rank, to become a brigadier general during the Theodore Roosevelt administration. And that was thought to be through nepotism. His father-in-law, uh, Senator Warren, was in charge of military affairs. Uh, there's probably a little bit of truth to that, but, but the 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 major point is, going back to Pershing's experience, he really pushed himself hard. He had a number of overseas appointments um, in the Philippines. A great deal of
0: combat experience.
1: Combat experience um, in the Spanish-American War, and he was an observer during the Russo-Japanese War. So he really deserved, I believe, to rise in in the military. And, and, And the other point about him is he went to West Point somewhat reluctantly. Right, Like a lot of um, men at that time who wanted to get a college education but couldn't afford one, the West Point and and the naval academy provided that free of charge. Pershing would go to West Point thinking, I'll do this for a while, and then I'll become either an educator or an attorney. Mm -hmm. But it turned out he had an aptitude for leadership, and many of his fellow cadets saw that. Ultimately, a lot of them would serve under him. Mm With the AEF. So I think all of that combined into okay, this is a guy that's competent who needs to be a general in the Army.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and r- right from the beginning, the you know, First Army's got a huge obstacle in front of it. You know, Falcón. Um, you know, Faqua Hill. I mean, these are two daunting heights overlooking the entire plain that the um, the Americans have to advance across. And the line hadn't moved for what, nearly four years before that. And yet the AEF successfully cleans these positions out in the first three days, um, although at great cost and actually behind schedule. Um, I wonder who was, which was more responsible for this delay in in uh, time and the cost of men. Uh, could it have been poor leadership? You know, particularly in 79th Division, that was tasked with taking Montfaucon. Was it poor planning, perhaps by Persian staff? Or was it poor doctrine? You know, the emphasis on open battle, that was at risk here.
1: You could argue all three points. Uh, first off, Pershing had, I think, a timetable that was just ludicrous. He wanted Montfaucon taken immediately, as you say, uh the French said to him, you know, if you get that by Christmas, you've done pretty well. I mean, mm-hmm. Moffat Kahn was uh, the largest, uh, the highest ground in the Meuse Valley where the Germans had it well entrenched and could look over and basically see everything that was going on. It's like being on the top of... Um, the, the Statue of Liberty or an um, Empire State Building. You right. could see quite a bit. Pershing recognized that that had to be taken. He assigned the 79th Division, which was a, a National Army Division, particularly the 313th Infantry, which was um, known as Baltimore's Own. And they moved forward fairly well, but it's just the ground itself, um, for example, the accounts I read, the ground had been heavily shell-popped from previous battles, before the Musargon, even from Verdun. And so men were falling in there. The weather was horrible. And you've got machine machine guns pointed at them. The fact that they made it to the woods, just on the perimeter of the heights, to me, was amazing. Pershing was adamant, though, that they keep pushing. He sent orders that night to go forward, the 313th, and their supporting units tried. They didn't make it. He was livid. But the next day, by the late morning, they captured that ground and it, and it opened up the area. What ultimately happens, though, the Germans, again, were, were caught somewhat by surprise. They didn't know, they knew the Americans were going to attack. They didn't exactly know where. They thought maybe it was in the direction of Metz, which would right. have been around the Miel area. As they started figuring out where the Americans were coming from, uh, Von Gaulwitz, the the commander in that area, brought up more troops. And that's really what delayed the advance of the American attacks. The Mm -hmm. Germans were now in full force, and they were willing to hold that area at all costs. Right. Well, it's such a dominating height. Right. And then getting back um, (coughs) to your point, which is well taken about incompetent officers, at least that's what Pershing's mind was, you had a lot of junior officers who just didn't have experience, Mm -hmm. and certainly didn't have experience in fighting on that kind of terrain. Some of them were not even in line on the jump-off. They were still in in school. They had been in a, an officer's training camp that uh, they weren't even brought in um, early enough for the jump-off. And you had some general officers, uh, brigadiers, who just, maybe they shouldn't have been there. And Pershing would go to the front, and he... He looked at these men and he was not afraid to sack them.
0: Yeah, his uh, reputation being ruthless, particularly with general officers. He right. He he removed
1: up. a number of them. Mm-hmm. But it was just it was really hard ground and if any of the listeners have been to that part of France or, or plan on going there, you could still see today how difficult it is, these heavy slopes that are out in the high ground you can still see remnants of wire and certainly the heavy machine gun um, concrete posts where the Germans had surrounded surrounded. That, and that's just in the open ground. Then you get into the Argonne Forest, which is to the left, which the, um, the French 4th Army um, had it tried to attack along with the Americans, mainly the 77th Division. That's a whole other um, area that's just difficult to penetrate through. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've made that pilgrimage, and it's, it's just daunting, you know, particularly when you, you climb to the top of Mount Falcon or drive up there. Right? Yes,
1: or, right, and you can walk up to the top of the tower, and yeah. you really get a good sense of, my God, it's, it, you know, going back to the Civil War reminds you of Mary's Heights at yeah. Fredericksburg, um, a little bit of... Um, you know, the high water mark at Gettysburg, Mm -hmm. the Pickett's Charge on the third day. I mean, open warfare is just, and on an open area, it's just not, Mm -hmm. it it really favors the defender. And and that's largely why the Americans had such a difficult time. Um, Yeah, they were inexperienced, that didn't help, but it's just, again, you look at that ground.
0: Well, conversely, I think you can make the argument that because they were inexperienced and they were fit and they were young, that's why they succeeded. Because if they had been experienced, if they had suffered through years of trench warfare, knew what it was,
1: they wouldn't have been able to make that punch. That's an interesting point. I hadn't really considered that, uh, but they certainly were eager. Um, You know, accounts that I read were American casualties. None of them; they were all facing forward. There were never yeah. accounts of Americans retreating, and that yeah. impressed the Allies quite a bit.
0: Yeah. What were Persians' real thoughts about African American men in uniform? It's it's
1: a it's an interesting question as well, and it's one that's somewhat uh, controversial. There were roughly two hundred thousand African Americans who served overseas. Primarily, they served in support units, mostly labor battalions and stevedores, doing the grunt work of unloading transport uh, supply ships, building roads, clearing roads. Only a handful of them literally served in combat units. You had four regiments that were in the provisional 93rd, including the infamous 369th Harlem Hellfighters, also known as the Harlem Rattlers, who actually served in combat longer than any other regiment right. in the AEF. And then you had a full African-American uh, division, the 92nd. Pershing um, is criticized for not doing enough for African-Americans, but I think his hands were tied. We had a segregated military at that time. Uh, Peyton March certainly didn't. Um, initiate anything as far as okay, why don't we integrate African American troops Mm -hmm. with um, white white troops, Uh, that wasn't going to happen and even the African American American troops were commanded by white officers and well, it's
0: let's also the southern control of, of
1: Congress too. Southern it's control Britain. of Congress. Um, one of the biggest critics, though, of the African American troops was Robert, e. Lee, Robert Lee Bullard, mm-hmm. who, as I mentioned, became command of Second Army. He had some of the ninety second division troops with him. And he hated them, and if you read yeah. his memoirs, it's it's quite nasty. The comments yeah. he said, and, and ones that I just think are, are not forgiving. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, 92nd Division, you mentioned them. I mean, they go into the line of Beanerville in late September. You know, and you read the accounts of, of that engagement. I mean, it's criminal the lack of support and preparation they're given. You know, no maps, no wire cutters, minimal artillery preparation against a very strong position. You know, they've been, they've been laid out over four years of occupation was you know what ex- to what extent did Pershing take a role in that I mean is is it is that what I'm, I'm trying to say is is that deployment just part of the plan or is it something that pershing you know was conscious
1: of or i'm not sure how conscious he was of that uh, the getting back to the 92nd their officers talk about incompetent mm-hmm. it wasn't so much that the troops were horrible they were eager they were eager yeah. to learn they had some crappy officers with them and that area around um, Vanderville was in the uh, Arnhem Forest, it's actually where the, they were supporting the 77th Division, yeah. and there are some thoughts that that was part of the reason why elements of the 77th were cut off, ultimately became known as the Lost Battalion, even though they weren't truly a battalion, nor were they lost. Yeah. The, the 77th yeah, huh. Division commanders knew exactly where they were, They just that they were cut off and they were trapped in an area. Certainly, as the commander of not only the AEF but First Army, um, Pershing's culpable. I mean, he's he's responsible for all of that. And as I pointed out earlier, he's a micromanager, and um, I think he he you could blame him for part of those problems that went on um, of just taking on too much control and not really following up.
0: You know, at the end of September. You know, the American effort is so bogged down. You know, he has to put the whole offensive on hold. This is when he decides to to step. Step up, rather, or maybe step aside. Well, actually,
1: he, he, um, that has that happens later on. Okay. You're right. The end of September, he has to basically stop the fighting briefly. There's still small action going on. Okay. Okay. And the, and the Allied commanders are livid about that. And he's got to regroup somewhat. He um, starts the fighting again a few days later in October, and it doesn't go any right. further. So, ultimately, it's by the middle of October where he's getting tremendous amount of pressure... One of his um, aides is driving with him to the front, and he looks back at, at Pershing sitting in the back seat, and he's literally in tears, and he shouts out his late wife's name, Frankie, and says, "You know, what have I done? What can I do?" Something along that effect, and yeah. I think that's really when Pershing kind of looked up at the sky and said, "You know, I, I need to do something here yeah. before this completely falls apart."
0: Well, I mean, setting back to September, then. I mean, that's when you know he. You know all the way to criticism,
1: that you've sure. got from
0: Haig, from Patet, from yeah. Foch, Clemenceau, Lord George. They're falling on him, calling for him to be sacked. Um, you know, saying that the 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 entire offensive was was a, was a mismanaged, bo- you know, botched affair. You know, in the first case, you know, were these attacks fair? That these these men are leveling against Persian? I mean, after all. The terrain in Musargon is a lot worse than it is in the Somme Valley. Right. You know.
1: No, I, I agree with you. The attacks on Pershing were not fair at all. And, and I think it was, it was either Foch or Hague. I can't remember at this point. I think it was Foch saying, you're holding up the entire Allied offensive on the uh, the, the, the rest of the Western Front, which I think is BS. Mm-hmm. He wasn't holding that up at all it was sure he was being held up clemenso got really angry because he came to visit he wanted to see mafocan after it had been taken by the americans and he got caught in a horrible traffic jam i mean it reminds me of driving around new york city or recently (laughs) los angeles and he was livid and part of the reason that the traffic was so bad is keep in mind an american division was roughly 28,000 officers and men, plus all kinds of supply trades. That's twice the size of other allied divisions, plus even the Germans. And and in some ways, that was kind of silly of the Americas to have these large... Fighting units. There's three main roads leading to the front. They're shell-pocked. It's raining all of the time. I mean, Clemenceau was. Li- I think he literally had to cut it like like people do on the highway. He had to do an illegal U-turn and cut across other terrain to get out of there. And he's just he looked at that and said, "Oh my God, these the Americans are never going to go anywhere mm-hmm. in this attack." And um, he had you know some legitimate complaints there, but to say that. It was totally all the, the problem of the Americans. Well, I would argue if it was such an easy front to fight, how come the French hadn't taken it in the in the previous uh, three and a half years?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, assuming there's something to these charges against Pershing, you know, particularly with regards to
1: doctrine or religious
0: then why wasn't he really?
1: I think that, uh, well, to his credit, President Wilson recognized that Pershing was the right person. To, in, in command, and had he been relieved, the most likely scenario would have been to place the American troops under Allied command, which yeah. is really what they were pushing, and that wasn't going to happen. Um, and um, uh, it, you know, it's 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 just a. a I, I think it's 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 a fortunate thing that that uh, Wilson didn't uh, and, and Secretary of War Baker didn't, you know, um, you know listen to the allies and say, okay, yeah, you're right, this isn't going well. Because in a way, the Americans really had the upper hand. I mean, the French and the British needed American troops. And, you know, their complaints aside, they they really needed the Americans there, and there were more Americans coming, and had the Americans said, okay, well, we're going to take a break from this fighting, the war could have been lost at that point.
0: Oh, yeah. What was Pershing's relationship like with the Marines under his command?
1: Uh, Pershing could care less about the Marines. In fact, um, initially when the idea was um, that Marines would be attached to his forces or even fight independently, he was adamantly against them. I'm not really sure why he, he didn't think either highly or didn't care much for the Marines. And it, it took some pushing by the commandant of the Marine Corps in Washington and um, having um, Secretary of Navy Josephus Daniels interfere before the Marines were allowed to come over and then ultimately Pershing placed them as two regiments under the 2nd Division. To me it's a little crazy because the Marines actually had more experience than most Army troops at that time. They had been deployed all around the world And, and many of the Marines had seen combat and had experienced officers and men. So why Pershing didn't want them? It could have to do with he was an Army guy and he didn't have you know the jealousies that oh, sort yeah. of thing uh,
0: Inner service rivalries
1: yeah, think yeah are, I think yeah.
0: so yeah well you know it's like you said October is really the toughest month for Persian, and the AEF but at the same time you know reading your account it's the most decisive month perhaps of the entire war for the AEF you know you, you go you know from one hand you have these you know very spirited extraordinary examples you know, the Lost Battalion, um, Corporal Alvin York—they mm-hmm. make great press, and people fixate on those. But you know, have they perhaps undermined the real magnitude of the American fighting around the Stellung
1: Well, I mean. Both the lost well the lost battalion was known about at the time um, York actually nobody knew about him other than within the eighty second division and a few other folks in the army it wasn 't until after the armistice when um, a newspaper reporter was poking around for a good story and Mm -hmm. supposedly Pershing said to him go check out the 82nd Division they got some guy over there I think his name is York who did some heroic deed in the Argonne and the operation that York was involved in was to relieve the Lost Battalion the Lost Battalion story though was reported heavily at the time and it was newspaper reporters who really were poking around for a good story, but Americans, we always like heroes I mean, we love our action movies we like our our heroes mostly, you know, back in the day in the military, today it's now Hollywood actors and athletes and so, we needed some kind of, you know, stories about World War I to come forward to keep an interest and to be proud of our troops, and so that's why I think the so-called Lost Battalion and then Corporal York, eventually Sergeant York, became this sort of uh, antithesis of the American uh, participation in, in uh, World War I. Um, York, of course, becomes more and more famous because of Gary Cooper and, you know, um, winning a um, an Oscar for his role in that. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, Bob, I'm, I'm okay with that. If, it, if that's how Americans want to remember World War I, why not? Okay.
0: You know, how serious... Was the autumn influenza outbreak on operations
1: oh it was it was horrible i mean it was um, it was i think the second wave of the flu mm-hmm. and it not only decimated the world it was a pandemic, certainly in the United States the east coast um, oh, here yeah. in new york boston washington i mean there were just lives that were being lost um, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem there was there weren 't enough doctors to treat um, the sick, because many of them were now in the army treating the wounded um, in France, but as far as the army was concerned, first army, they were decimated by the flu, started out usually as pneumonia, and there really wasn't anything they could do other than part of the problem was the, the terrain they're fighting in, especially in October, it's raining a lot, it's damp, it's chilly. Men are, are literally sleeping um, out in the open, in trenches, in they're sleeping in shell holes on on the damp ground. Yeah. Until they, you know, improve conditions, which they never ultimately did, um, the only way really to combat the flu is to bring more reserves over from the U.S.
0: Yeah. Yeah, who may have already had it, contracted exactly.
1: it. Exactly. Yeah. And um, it, it certainly impacted the operations on the Meuse-Argonne front and other fronts as well. Yeah.
0: Well, fortunately, I guess the Germans were just afflicted by. They were.
1: I mean, and they blamed the Americans for passing on to them and the close fighting. Uh, there's an account um, in in the Hindenburg line over in the um, in the Somme area, which I write about in. In uh, borrowed soldiers, where supposedly the close-in fighting along the San Canal Canal is where some of the Germans in that area got the flu. Whether or not that's true, it's hard to say, but it's possible.
0: You portray this very gutsy and decisive Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur, you know, as Brigade Commander in the 42nd Rainbow Division. Particularly around Chatillon. I was curious, that that account, how does that match up against some of the more recent accusations that people have been, historians have begun to level against MacArthur?
1: Well, MacArthur, I mean, he's this larger than life figure. And when you get somebody that becomes larger in life, they almost become mythical. Mm -hmm. But I think as far as the Côte de Chatillon, which was uh, part of the Kremholt Stellung, which you mentioned, was a important part of the line that the Germans had heavily fortified. And without breaking through there, the American advance would just continue to be stalled. Yeah. And MacArthur, to his credit, and, and I'll be completely out in the open, I'm kind of a, a fan of MacArthur, too. I don't know, I, I guess I like these nonconformist type we're allowed, officers. We're allowed as a to have so Sure, Earth, yeah. sure. And... Um, he was adamant that his troops were going to break through. He received a lot of pressure from his corps commander, Charles P. Summerall. Um, MacArthur's troops in the, in the 84th Brigade suffered an enormous amount of casualties but he would lead from the front and they eventually broke through that line which i think ultimately sealed the fate of the germans in that area i know uh, you're referring i think to a more recent book that came out by historian robert p farrell who yeah. who blames you know macarthur for being erratic and Attacking and, and the loss of lives. I don't see... Again, it just goes back to the overall Muzar God front. Um, I like Farrell a lot and knew him quite well, but I don't agree with his assessment. Um, yeah, MacArthur was somewhat of a cowboy. He was a nonconformist. He didn't wear a full uniform. He actually got... Um, Stopped at one point, almost arrested for not looking like an American soldier, much less an officer. Um, MacArthur downplayed that. But I think um, credit goes to credit. He was the most decorated officer in the AEF. And um, by leading those troops from the front and forcing them through the line, albeit with a lot of casualties, really broke open the Meuse-Argonne Front, with help from others. The 32nd Division was fighting in the same area. Right. They also suffered a number of casualties. But that point in the battle really showed the Americans' mettle for fighting and, and understanding how to fight on this terrain. And right. it was just now a matter of time. But it, getting back to the Germans, they weren't stopping. They knew that the war was over. There was negotiations behind the scenes based on Wilson's 14 points about ending the war as an armistice, but the Germans wouldn't wouldn't give up and they were they they really did fight to the last man. Yeah.
0: You know, talking about flamboyance amongst individuals and groups, you know, what was Pershing's position regarding the independent air arm acting on its own initiative? I mean, particularly under you know Billy Mitchell's leadership.
1: Sure. I, I, almost like the Marines, he didn't really think that highly of the air war. And the, the, most of the role of the air service at that time was supporting artillery and troop movements. In other words, reconnaissance. But he had Billy Mitchell, another flamboyant guy who, again, I sort of admire. He, he went; uh, he was promoted to uh, brigadier general, commanded all the AEF air service. He was a constant fixture at Pershing's headquarters badgering him time time again about the role of the air service he really pushed that he felt that that was not only the future of warfare but it was the present and um, Pershing you know listened to him but he recognized as I think we do today that's really the ground troops that will ultimately prevail um, in a battle and of course we know what happened to Billy Mitchell he pushed that doctrine after the war and um he made some predictions, which ultimately became true, especially about Pearl Harbor, but it, it ended up costing him his career uh, right. in the air service. But he was quite a character, and those all the men in the air service, they were all nonconformists. I mean, you know, Knights of the Air, you know, these, the death rate was amazing. Oh, uh, Lord, yeah. You had Eddie Rickenbacker, who was the ace with 26 victories. You had Frank Luke who had 18 victories. Even, um, even He was killed early in the battle. He was known as the Balloon Buster. Mm-hmm. So there were a number of wonderful pilots. Quentin Roosevelt. Quentin Roosevelt dies in July, this youngest son of, of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, they were very brave. And you know there was some night bombing that went on, but um, it wasn't that effective. Right,
0: right. You know, Virgin's desire was to end the war with a total and unconditional surrender. No, along the lines of Ulysses, that's grand, mm-hmm. right? Um, given the condition of the time, you know, especially the weariness of the AEF and the Western Allied armies, was such a policy really viable if the Armistice had not occurred?
1: That's, that's an excellent question, and again, it goes back to all the what ifs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Pershing was adamant that not only once the Americans or the allies had broken through the German lines, that they continue into Berlin Mm -hmm. and just flatten the Germans. The other allies who had just been bled white, the British and the French in particular, just said look, we just want this thing to be over but we want to make sure that the Germans are really soundly defeated, especially at the at the you know to take the blame yeah. and those uh, kind of agree with he no, agreed with him Paris. to some point, but the British were pushing for let's just get this war right. over with. Ultimately, you know, Pershing I think I think was was correct. I mean, we saw that even though the Germans had to give up you know much of their arms, eventually their navy and so forth, they never really abided by what was set down at, at Versailles. Right. Um, had they been soundly defeated um, in Germany? Maybe that would have prevented World War II. It's, it's so difficult to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we're closing at the end of the interview, Mitch, and it's time for our customary final questions. Uh, our listeners know what I mean. First, what are you reading these days that you think is worth sharing with our audience?
1: Well, to be honest with you, Bob, I've kind of shifted away from um, World War I just because I've been so immersed in it <laughs> over the past a few years, but there's a number of wonderful books that have um, come out and I suspect will continue um, to come out. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, there's a, a, one book, although I haven't read it by William Walker that talks about specifically the battle at Montfaucon. Mm-hmm. And h- his theory is that, um, Bullard and some of the other commanders, they could have taken that earlier, yeah. but they, um, you know, for a number of reasons, uh, misconduct, poor leadership and obstinance. Allow that to drag on a little bit um, right. uh, longer. Um, I just finished reading a, um, a manuscript that will come out uh, by James Nelson, I think in the fall on Clifton Cates, who is a Marine Corps commander. And that, that's um, quite interesting. And then the book I'm most excited about that I'm also um, a, an early reader on is about baseball in World War One. Um, there were a number of major leaguers who served in the Army and some of them in, in combat. Um, yeah. One of whom I mentioned in the book, um, Eddie Grant, who was a, uh, who had played for a number of different teams. Actually wasn't in baseball at the time, but he was uh, one of the casualties of the lost battalion.
0: Yeah, I think about poor Christy Matheson, whose career was pretty well destroyed after he was gassed during mm-hmm. the news are gone.
1: Yeah. I suspect there's going to be a lot more books coming out in the next year or two and I wouldn't be surprised if more books on the muse are got. Well, second question what's next for you academically speaking? Were you studying your sights? Well, I'm going to um, sort of just uh, take a rest this this book uh, <laughs> w- was a labor of love, it, it, it took a while and and um, if any of your listeners know, working full time and writing, they, they tend not to mix, Yeah, and I did this, you know as, as we talked about very beginning with the National Archives, you know, working full time. So I'm kind of taking a break. Um, I'm not really sure. There isn't anything that's ultimately grabbing me yet to, mm-hmm. to start writing, but I know I'll get the bug at some point and that'll change. Well, it's a chance listeners.
0: If you have any suggestions, post them as comments to the interview. We'll make sure Mitch gets them. And Mitch, I want to, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Okay. The books of military
1: history. It, it was my pleasure, and I enjoyed doing the interview. And um, I really hope that you know, it, in the next year or two, folks look back on World War One, especially the U.S. role, and mm-hmm. do things whether it's do their own publishing, um, give talks to schools, mm-hmm. honor the memorials in their towns. I mean, Nor- Norwich University, I know, is working on a project to honor um, cadets. From the school right. who served in World War One, and it's really a time because it, World War One, when we look back on it, yeah, it was a hundred years ago, but it brought the U.S. into the modern age, and it created the military that we know today—that's the most mm-hmm. powerful in the world—and it, right. it, it all started with World War One. And then, as an aside, when you look at all the issues that are going on in the Middle East with all mm-hmm. ISIS and, and and the problems of terrorism, a lot of that. Goes back to World War One, not making the right decisions in yeah. certain areas and drawing up the lines and so forth. So First World War is an incredibly important period, and I hope folks, if you know who read my book, listen to this interview, really t- take time to reflect on it.
0: yeah, and I'm sure they will. And for all our listeners, again, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off. Thank you all for listening.